Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Continue through the book. We have come to a section uh, that we started last week uh, in chapters 11 through 14 where Paul is addressing the issue of conduct and worship. What does it look like to worship God? What should be uh, the elements that are part of our attitudes, our mindsets, our perspectives as we engage with God um, in worship, as we engage with each other in those times of worship? And last week, uh, as we began uh, back there in chapter 11, we looked at the issue of respect and how respect for each other, respect for ourselves, respect for God is at the, the, the core of the discussion, the, the issue of being able to um, to come together in worship, to be able to express our, our, our voices in unison, to be able to uh, pursue the issue of, of unity, connectedness, that is such an important part of the identity of the church. Um, respect plays a, a major role there. As we move into chapter 12, we come to the matter, the issue of diversity. And, and these two are obviously very closely intertwined. To be able to truly have diversity, respect must be present. Um, if if you are in a situation, you're in a circumstance where you are different, and the people you are amongst, the people you are communicating with, do not respect that difference, you have a real difficult time expressing, right? And we we've all been in those situations, you know, where we are kind of the outlier, we're kind of the, the person on the edge, we're the ones who's just a little bit different, and it's real easy in those situations that um, if if the the group we're in is not welcoming, is not respectful of who we are, it's real easy to to kind of just go inside ourselves and just I'm just going to remain silent. I'm just going to remain over here on the side, and I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not gonna cause any problems or or anything like that. That's that's real easy, but that's not what we want in our church members. That's not what we want. In our fellowship, we want people to be able to express all that they are in Christ. We want people to be able to communicate, relate, and and reveal the the things that God is doing in their lives, the things that God has gifted them with, the things that God has has blessed them with. And so, Paul, uh, as he's dealing with this issue of worship, he he moves from the issue of respect now into the issue of diversity, having established that core issue. He's going to bring in now this, this second issue. And he's going to do so through the lens, through the issue of spiritual gifts. And so let's look here, beginning in, in verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. And so Paul here uh, opens with, with this issue. There, there is apparently, again, some question about whether or not Certain individuals qualify or can be identified as Christians as they're fellowshipping with the church here. Are they really one of us? Because they kind of look different. 
kind of sound different, and they don't exactly express the same gifts that I'm expressing, that I'm communicating, that I am manifesting. Can someone really be part of this church, part of this body, if they're so different from me? So Paul attacks that, addresses that, and the, his first point here in these verses is that diversity in roles means we should view ourselves as interconnected but not identical. Okay. We all have different roles in this church. We have different responsibilities, things that God has laid on our hearts, things that God has, has driven us toward, things that God has expressed in our own individual lives and experiences. Your experience of God, in some ways, is different than my experience of God. Now, there are many things that are very much the same because it's the same God. And so there's going to be a lot of overlap, but, but there's going to be some realities and some, some elements that are different in your experience than mine because you have different gifts. You have different personalities. You have different leanings, and, and you have a different background. And, and all of those things are important for us to understand. For us to see. And as you, you see Paul move into this list that we're going to see here in just a moment, in verses 7 and following, we're, we're going to see a list here that is representative but not exhaustive. And, and what I simply mean by that is this. Paul picks the gifts that he picks because they're some of the more common gifts in the first century. Are some of the things that the first century congregation would have needed to confirm the work of Christ in their midst, to carry out the work of Christ. But there are things that have happened in the 2,000 years, almost, since Paul wrote this, that have changed how we function in day-to-day -day life, and therefore how we function in this place as well. We have things available to us. They didn't. We have instruments. They didn't have. We have technology that they didn't have. We have lots of realities that we interact with on a daily basis that they didn't interact with, and, and vice versa. They had things that, that we don't interact with. They have issues that we don't have to deal with. We're on this side of the canonization of Scripture. We have the New Testament. They didn't have that. And that changes how these gifts are manifested and how they are expressed. Now, that's, just not, that's not just a matter of my opinion. That is, that's reflected in the biblical text. And, and it's reflected in the fact that as Paul lists this gift of the Spirit throughout his various letters, the lists are different. Why are they different? Because the churches that he's writing to are different. And so some churches are going to have certain need for certain gifts that maybe another church doesn't. Now there's some that are repeated between those. And again, that helps us to see that, that there was a commonality in their experience in the first century that required these things. But again, each church is different. And the gifts are not simply limited to what we might think of as churchy things. 
one of the my favorite people to to point out when I'm going through uh, the Old Testament is an individual that we're introduced to in the, the latter part of the book of Exodus. And his name is Bezalel. Anybody ever heard of Bezalel? Not a very common name. He's not somebody who's who's on the lips of your common church member and so forth. Man, I was just reading about Bezalel the other day. You, you just don't encounter him. And yet, he has a very important, I think it's an important distinction in Scripture. He's the first person in Scripture to be recorded as being filled with the Spirit of God. Which is interesting. It's not Moses. It's not Adam. It's not Noah. It's not any of these big-name figures that we think of. The first person to be recorded as having been filled with the Spirit of God is a man named Bezalel. Who was Bezalel? He was a carpenter. He was a craftsman. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a leader. He was the person who built and designed the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. Just a craftsman. And I think that I think that's so significant that God in his in his understanding, in his perspective, in, in his view of humanity. But the first person he records, I'm not saying he's necessarily the first person that happened to, the first person he records is being filled with the Spirit of God and somebody who's not a churchy position. He's a builder. He's a construction worker, if you will. And I think that says something significant about the empowering of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and what God gives us and how God wants us to, to view ourselves. Some of you may be sitting there and, and maybe you've been in church for years and you're like, man, I just don't know where I fit in church because, you know, I can't preach, I can't teach, I can't sing, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't, whatever it is. You have this list in your head of things that you think leaders in the church ought to be able to do. You're like, I can't do any of those things. Let me just simply ask you, what can you do? What can you do? Because what you can do is something God has gifted you for his glory, for his purposes. And, and it's important that you, that you seek out ways to, to express that in connection with his ministry, with his work here on this earth. Now, here's the, here's the question. How do we decide if something's a spiritual gift? If this list is not exhaustive, how do we decide if, okay, yeah, that is actually a gift of the Spirit? I think Paul gives us this, this clue in, in, in verse 3, because the, the verse 3 kind of stands out. It, it kind of goes almost in its own direction. I mean, you notice that? You're reading here, and he's talking about, he's talking about gifts and how you were pagans, you were doing this, and then all of a sudden it says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is occurs. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Where does that sentence come from? Why does he just suddenly throw that in? He's talking about spiritual gifts. Why does he suddenly mention this, this reality of if you're if you're part of if you're part of the church, if you're gifted by the Spirit, you can't say Jesus is cursed. And if you say Jesus is Lord, you you can't say that outside of the Spirit. Why does he throw that in? I think he's giving us clues there of how to identify 
whether or not a spiritual gift is indeed a spiritual gift or just a talent or something else. And the simple answer is this. Does it point to Jesus? Does it point to Jesus? In what you have, what you're doing, how you're using it, are you pointing to Jesus' glory? Are you pointing to Jesus' authority? Are you, are you living in such a way, are you carrying out that giftedness in such a way that Christ is glorified and his church is blessed? That's how you know if it's a spiritual gift. Now, along with that reality comes the fact that sometimes it is a spiritual gift and we haven't used it that way. Because we've pushed it aside or we've, we've lessened it or we've uh, demeaned it in some way. So it's important for us to, to understand that, that God has given us this diverse reality of giftedness. And he's given it to us because that's the very nature of God himself. There in verse 6, uh, excuse me, verses 4 through 6, you have one of the clearest, clear, clearest, clearest references to the Trinity anywhere in Scripture. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there in those four things, three verses. Why? Because God himself, as we talked a little bit about last week, God himself expresses a diversity of giftedness. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they all have different roles in the carrying out of God's will, in the carrying out of God's plan, in the carrying out of God's interaction with humanity. They're all equal. We talked about that last week. They have different roles. They have different, if you will, giftedness. And that then finds expression what? In the church that God has created. We have different roles. We have different capacities. And we need to see that as a part of God's plan. That we too are connected. We too are equal in God's plan and God's providence in terms of how things work out. But we're not identical. We're different. Paul goes on in verses 7 through 10 to, to tell us that diversity in roles means we each have a responsibility to different tasks. He says, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performance of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirit. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as the body is one, and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, through many, though many are one body, so also is Christ. We all need to be being who we are. I know that's not the best constructed sentence, but I think it's, it's an accurate appraisal of what Paul is saying here. We all need to be being who we are. We need to be about 
being ourselves. Everyone has been given a gift. Verse 7 suggests that this is everyone. He says a manifestation, excuse me, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Every person is given a spiritual gift. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. You have something that God has endowed you with, something God has blessed you with, to be able to help this church, to help his kingdom grow and become all that it's designed to be. How many of you, I don't want to embarrass anybody, so you don't raise your hand, we'll just assume you just didn't want to answer, okay? But how many of you know what your spiritual gift is? If you know what your spiritual gift is, raise your hand. It's something that we talk about a lot in church. But there's an awful lot of people. Again, I don't know because I gave you permission not to necessarily raise your hand. But there's an awful lot of people who don't know what their spiritual gift is. They don't know how God has blessed them. They don't know, therefore, where they fit in the congregation or what they should be about. Because they're not carrying that out. Because they don't know what it is. But he says, God has given us these gifts for what? For the common good. And so in a very real sense, we hurt each other. We hurt God's ministry. We hurt God's kingdom and his outreach when we don't express, live out. Spiritual gift. Church is not the healthy body it should be. Some of us, one of us, is not living out our spiritual gift. It's not expressing it, not communicating it. So how do we help in that journey? Well, in terms of discovering who we are, in terms of people being able to carry it out. Let me, let me just say, number one, we need to realize who God has made us. Who has God made you? We need to accept that because a lot of times in this world, in this life, in this reality, we look at ourselves and we're, we're like, I don't like who I am. And I'm not talking about sin. We shouldn't like sin. I'm not talking about, you know, these, these things that are, that are um, detrimental to who we are, health issues mental issues, whatever. I'm talking about, for instance, our personality. Some of us are, are quiet. Some of us not so much. And a lot of times we look at that sort of thing and we say, God, could you just change my quietness? Could you just make me maybe not so mouthy? Go the other way. And we ask God to, to change the very essence of who he's made us. Just, just look at a, at a couple of biblical characters to see that that's not what we need to be pursuing, not what we need to be about. My, my favorite example is Moses. 
We're, we're all familiar with the story. You see it in movies and all that. Moses is out tending flock today, right? And he looks up on the mountain and he sees this bush that's on fire but not being consumed. Text says, Moses says to himself, I'm, I'm going to go check this out. So he walks up to this bush. Again, it's a bush. It's a common everyday bush, common everyday tree that he'd seen all over the, the desert that he's functioned in. But this time, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's not, it's not burning away. There's just this fire around it. And as he approaches, the bush talks to him. Moses, Moses. Take off your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. Apparently Moses does that. Takes off the shoes, approaches the bush. Moses, I have a mission for you. I want you to go into Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people come out here and worship me on this mountain. Now put yourself in that setting. Put yourself in that situation. You, just an everyday occurrence, you're out there finding your sheep, doing your business. You see a bush, it's on fire, but not being consumed by that fire. You approach it, it knows your name. It tells you you're on holy ground. And then it gives you an instruction to go into Egypt and tell my people to come out here and worship. How are you responding to that? How are you dealing with that reality? Are you dumbfounded? I don't know what to say. How do I even respond to this? Are you like, okay. And then you walk away and just uh, get that. I ain't doing that. That was weird. You know? What's your personality drive you to do? Well, apparently Moses' personality drove him to enter into a debate with that bush. Okay? Of all the things that I can think of my reaction would be, that would not be one of them. I'm not debating that bush. I'm probably personally a little freaked out. Dumped on it. I ain't saying nothing. But Moses is going to enter into a debate. He asks four questions. And then ultimately says, nah. His fifth response is, nah, send somebody else. Now we look at that and we say, man, Moses, Really? Really? I mean, I can understand maybe one question, but four questions? And then a, no, no thank you? But that tells us something very important about Moses. Think about what God's asking him to do. God's asking him to go stand in front of the most powerful man in the world with all of the splendor and gold and the immense palaces that Egypt had, all of that 
awesome reality that Egypt was at this time in history. They're at their height of their power. At this time in history, Egypt controlled from Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, all the way down into Ethiopia. They controlled it all. Okay, Most powerful kingdom in the world. And Moses is supposed to go talk in front of the leader of that most powerful kingdom in the world and say, let my people go. And not only that, God knows that what? God's going to harden the heart of that guy so that he gives Moses a hard time about it. So it says yes, and then says no, and then says no, and then says yes, and then says no, and just keep going back and forth. What do you need? You need somebody with the personality to be able to stand in front of something amazing and argue with it. You need someone with that stubbornness. You need somebody with that single-minded commitment to whatever it is they're committed to, they're going to follow it through. So even though we look at Moses' actions and we say, man, really? Really? If we step back for just a second, we see what God saw in Moses. The very person with the personality to do what he's asking them to do. And I say that to say this. What was Moses' personality type? It was stubbornness. And most of us, we consider stubbornness a negative. And if you're one of those people who are stubborn, you have any kind of sensitivity to it at all, you probably at one time in your life said, God, please make me not quite as stubborn. Help me to be more open. Help me to be more this or help me to be more that. And what God wants you to see, what God wants you to understand is, I made you stubborn for a reason. Now, I didn't make you stubborn for your own purposes. I didn't make you stubborn to be sinful. I didn't make you stubborn to be obnoxious. But I made you stubborn for a reason. I made you stubborn because you're the type of person that if I can just get on fire for me, you're going to share your faith like nobody's you're going to communicate the gospel like no one else can because you're stubborn about it. You're driven by it. That's your passion. That's your gift. That's your makeup. We need those people who can stand in the midst of opposition, who can stand in the midst of ridicule and say, you know what? I'm standing my ground for Christ and I'm going to proclaim the gospel clearly here today. On the other side of the issue, we have we have people who are real quiet. Man, I just don't. I don't, want to, I don't want to interact with people. You know, I start talking to people and it just falls apart real quickly. I can be nice, I can get along, but man, don't don't make me a leader. Don't make me in front of people. Whatever. Most of the time, those people have what? However, they have a really good work ethic, and you put them to work behind the scenes, and they're going to go gangbusters on. my wife. You will never see my wife get in front of a crowd. Never. She hates it. Don't, don't ask her to talk to a group. She just won't do it. It's not how she's constructed. But you give her something behind the scenes to do, and she's going to go like gangbusters at it. She's going to do a better job than 
you can possibly imagine. That's how she's made. Okay. We need both. And all the different varieties of people out there that are a mix of all of those things. We need all of those realities. We need to stop and ask, who has God made me? Who has God constructed me to be? How can I use that for his glory? Along with that, we need to let people be who they are. So it's not just our own evaluation of ourselves as a church. We need to let people be who they are. A lot of times we want to shape and mold people into our mold of who we think they should be. To use my wife again, and I'm a little more comfortable doing that today since she's not here. <laughs> but to use my wife again, you know, as, as when, when we got married, I said, you're marrying, a, you're marrying a pastor. And with that comes certain expectations. But I want you to know, I will never ask you to be somebody you're not. And every church I've ever interviewed with, they've always asked, every church asks, so what exactly is your wife's role in, in your ministry? And it's a good question. It's an appropriate question. But every time I've told them, she will not be leading the women's Bible studies. She won't be doing, you know, she doesn't do that. She doesn't do, she doesn't do some of the things that are sometimes considered the traditional pastor's wife's role. But she will love on people. She will work in the background. She'll cook like nobody's business. She'll do all these things. She loves people. She loves the Lord. And she will honor that calling. But her calling is not necessarily what you think her calling has to be. And we need to be careful that not just with pastors, wives, and others that, that we don't pin people into a certain mindset, but each other. That we don't push people to be someone they're not. Paul here in verses 7 through 10, it's interesting that, that he shifts his, his language. And we don't, always, we don't always pick up on it because the English doesn't necessarily um, come across. But he uses two different words for another. In, in verse 9, for instance, it, you have one type of another, but in verse 10 when he says a various kind of tongues or uh, another kind of, of, of different kind, okay, we, we need to understand that that Another in some places means another of various kinds, and in some places it means another of different kinds. And so we need to be mindful, again, of that difference and that distinction. And so when I look at these gifts, I see, I see three categories, and I think these categories are pretty consistent throughout Paul's writings. Three categories of gifts that, again, are necessary for the church to function but they may find different expression in different eras in different churches in different locale, uh, locales. The first is gifts that are related to the growth of the church. The spiritual numerical growth of the church. 
verse 8 would be this, this list. You have wisdom and knowledge. These are, these are gifts that are the basics for teaching. To have wisdom, to have knowledge is an important part of being able to teach, to proclaim. And so you have those gifts that are related to the growth of the church. Then secondly, you have gifts that are related to the preservation of the church. That the church continues on. It's, it's well-being is preserved. And you see this in verses 9 through the first part of verse 10. With the faith and the healing and the miraculous. And then the spiritual well-being, prophecy, and the distinguishing of spirits. So you have the physical and the spiritual well-being identified there as the second group. The preservation of the church. And then third are the gifts related to the intercession for the church. And you have the issue of tongues and, and speaking for the people to God. In practical terms, that is the church's business. Those are the three roles of the church. That we grow in the Lord and our understanding of Him. That we encourage one another, support one another, help each other and that we take the word out to the world around us. And I think that can help us just narrow down what our own spiritual gift is. Where do I fit in what God's calling me to do? The third thing Paul tells us here is that diversity in roles does not necessarily mean diversity in goals. He says in verse 13, we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Repeatedly, he talks about one spirit, one body, one church. What is our goal with our gifts? What is our goal with, with our talents? What's our goal with our personalities? What's our goal with our attitudes and, and outlooks? One spirit, one body, one church. Even though we're diverse in how that might play out and what that may look like, we need to be connected in pursuing that singular goal. One of my favorite writers, authors, is, is Tozer. He has a lot to say about the church and... Um, it's holiness and the nature of worship. If you've not read him, he's very readable, and I highly recommend one of his works, A.W. Tozer. And he has a quote about this very issue that, that I'd like to read for you. I've got a picture that goes along with it. It says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same chord are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearest to each other than they could possibly be when they were they to become unity, conscience, and to turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So what's he saying there? He's saying... You have this outside element that each needs to be attuned to. He uses the illustration of these pianos. 
that if they're all tuned to the same fork, they're automatically going to be tuned to each other. Okay. And carpentry. One of the first things my dad taught me in building something, especially if you have if you're cutting boards that are the same length. Okay. He says, he says, Tim, don't I remember very clearly, because I cut, you know, I measured out a board, I cut it, and then my tendency was I'm just gonna lay the board I just cut down on the board I just cut and draw that line and cut it again. But you know what happens if you do that, y'all? You get different lengths boards. Okay. My dad said, don't do that when you're building something. You gotta measure each one individually, but use the same standard each time for each one. Whether it's a measuring tape or whatever it is, use the same standard for every single board, and then guess what? All your boards will be the same length. You tune your pianos all to the same fork. All your pianos are going to sound the same. As Christians, we do what? We don't try and tune each other, tune ourselves to each other. If we try and tune ourselves to each other, we're going to constantly go in different directions, and we're not going to be equal. We're not going to be measured up. Instead, we tune ourselves to Christ, to the Spirit. And as Tozer says here, when we're all attuned to the Spirit, we're all listening to Christ then by definition, we're all going to be on the same page together. That's our goal. That's our purpose, is to be unified. How are we unified? Not by trying necessarily to match each other, but by all of us trying to match Christ. Then we'll find that connection. Paul goes on to say diversity in roles means diversity in, in who we are as well. And he gives us these expressions here in verses 14 and following. I'm not going to read the passage because we're short on time, but it's the passage that's well known because I'm not a hand or because I'm not the head or because I'm not this, then I don't want to be a part of it. And Paul's saying, no, don't, don't all try and be that. Be who you are. But part of the where I want to go with this passage and where I think Paul would ultimately go is that we need to realize as a church that for too long we have gone and sought after people who are just like us. And I think we lose something of who we are when that's our pursuit. If we all look alike and we all dress alike and we all come from the same socioeconomical, the same racial ethnic background, if we all come from all of those things the same, we're losing a major part of who we're supposed to be as a church. Christ wants us to reach out to people that are different than us. That's part of the beauty of the church. The illustration of the, of the bouquet. What are our prettiest bouquets? They're not the ones that are all the same flower. Our most beautiful ones are what? Where you have the different colors, the different types, the different lengths, the different widths. Those are the most beautiful bouquets when they're put together. That's what Christ wants us to be as a church. Different colors, different heights, different ways of talking, different ways of thinking, but unified. And then Paul concludes in verses 27 through 31 by telling us that Unity in diversity is found by understanding there is an order 
in God's plan. God does have an order that he wants us to follow. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts and healings, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in other tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. And that's where he's going to go in what follows. He's going to he's going to give us the better way. We'll see that next week. That the third element of conduct and worship is love. But he wants us to understand here that there is an order. There is plan. And if you look at the order he's given here, I don't necessarily think he's given us an order in terms of importance. I think the order he's given us is is the chronology of how the church developed. It starts with the apostles, the prophets, then the teachers, then the miracles, so forth. I think that's the order he's giving us here. He's saying God has a plan. God has an order. And we need to be submissive to what it is that God's directing us. It's not our plan, not our glory, it's not our purpose we pursue, it's God's. Let me encourage you this week to spend some time in prayer and contemplation over your giftedness, over who God has made you. What has God formed you to be? Who has God formed you to be? And then simply ask, am I using that formation, that shaping, that creation that I am for God's glory and God's purposes? Or am I simply using it for myself? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here that they are wonderfully and specially created by you. God, I pray that you would help each of us to, to evaluate who we are, to evaluate how you've made us, to find in our personalities, in our gifts, in our roles, your purpose for our lives. Lord, help us to always pursue you first and foremost. We ask that you use this time now response to guide us according to your plan. It's in Christ's name we pray.